Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Psalms given to us that we might, uh, might learn from them, that they might help shape us, that they might uh, affect our hearts in such a way that we might be drawn into greater and more passionate worship of you. Uh, may that be the case today as we look at this fourth psalm. May you, may you conform us to the likeness of Christ Jesus. And may you set our hearts aflame with love for him. For it's in his name that we ask it. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we're beginning our service, our series on the summer psalms. Uh, we're looking at different types of psalms throughout the summer. We'll kind of jump around. Uh, today's psalm actually is, is what we might call uh, an evening psalm. If you were in Sunday school class today, you learned about Psalm 3, the psalm that comes right before this. And it, it was, it's a morning psalm. Now they're called that, uh, not because those are the only times you can say them, but, but more that they're written in that context. Uh, this, this is written as an evening psalm, re referring to the fact that it's, it's something that was, was given at the end of the day. Looking back on the day uh, before and, and kind of wrestling with the distresses that David faced in the situation that he was in. Some suggest the situation it refers to is when his son Absalom revolted against him. That could certainly be. I don't doubt it's true. It could have been perhaps when Saul was pursuing him, trying to murder him. It could have been all kinds of other circumstances that faced him. I, for one, am glad, though, though I am a little curious, I'm glad that it doesn't actually tell us what exactly the situation was that David was facing when he wrote this. Because leaving it as unspecified makes it all that much easier to apply to our lives, doesn't it? Right? Because let's say it is the whole situation with Absalom. How likely are you to have your son revolt against you, try to kill you, and steal your throne as the king of Israel? Probably not very likely, right? But if he's dealing with something else, uh, it's probably very likely that you would be dealing with something similar. And regardless of what it is, we all deal with distress and trials and difficulties. And this psalm is a wonderful example that helps us deal with them. Like I said, it was an evening psalm, looking back at the day, and oftentimes during the evening, at nighttime, our distresses seem greater, don't they? You know, I, I don't know what it is. Perhaps it's because, you know, you're just worn out by a long, hard day, and, and you're just more vulnerable to spiritual attack at that time. Perhaps it's just because of the fact that uh, life kind of slows down at night sometimes. You've been busy running around doing things all day and you stop and you're standing still, sitting still, just close, closing down the day and you have time to think about things and, and those thoughts can press in on you where before maybe you were able to push them aside. Perhaps it's just the fact that at nighttime it's dark, right? And, and there is a reality to that, that light, sunlight brightens our day, it brightens our disposition. Uh, when it gets dark outside, it, it can seem kind of more gloomy than it otherwise would seem. And so it could be any of those things that causes it, but, but the reality is true that at evening time, our distresses can seem greater. And this is a great psalm that tells us what to do in such a situation. Uh, specifically telling us that we should confidently cry out to God, that we should intentionally redirect our passions, and we should peacefully rest in our Lord. 
right? We, we consider David's situation here, and, and we wonder what exactly it is that he is dealing with. We don't know. We realize we face similar things, whether it's, uh, whether it's doubt that has come upon us, or, or whether it's perhaps uh, our hope fading away, whether it's temptation having seized us and us having given into it, having fallen to temptation, when we justly stand accused as Satan is whispering in our ear, don't you know what kind of person you are? Yes, Satan, I do. And I am justly accused at times. Perhaps unbelief overwhelms us at times. There's all kinds of trials and distress that come upon us. No matter what it is that we face, though, that first thing that we should do is confidently cry out to God. We see it in verse 1. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. It seems a little uh, presumptuous, doesn't it? If you think about it, I mean, David's coming before the God of the universe, right? If you were wanting to uh, get a hold of the governor or the president, and you just like said, hey, I need an answer right now, uh, that, that would be a little out of order, right? Well, God is of far higher rank than any governor or any president, and yet we can go before him in such a way, answer me when I call, and he will. What a wonderful blessing that is. What a wonderful gift of his grace that we have. Though there are many different types of troubles that we might face, there is only one solution that will ultimately give comfort, and that is to draw it from God and to, to receive it from him through prayer. That's what we must do. We must call upon the Lord. James 4 tells us you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions, right? He, he, he says we want to spend them on our passions, we want to do what we want to do, but what he's saying is we need to offer a prayer of faith instead. A prayer of faith, not just that, that believes that we will get what we get, that, that looks to God as some kind of genie that is at our disposal to give us whatever we want, and as long as we believe strong enough, he'll give it to us. No, that's not the, the sense at all that I'm talking of when I say a prayer of faith. I'm talking a prayer that trusts in God above all else, that, that realizes that he has your best interests at heart, that, that he is the smartest one in the room at all times, right? And that we can depend upon him, even when we, we don't understand what it is that he is doing, when we don't get what he is doing, right? We, we can trust, we can have faith, we can, we can believe that though we do not like what is coming our way, it is from the hand of God. He has his purposes, and his purposes are good. And so if we pray in this way, we can pray confidently, even like Jesus in the garden, consider him, right? As he, he's there and he, he says to the Father, uh, you know, I, I truly wish that this cup could pass from me, that I could, I could forego this suffering. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, right? He, he, he realizes that, that what is coming from the Father's hand is not going to be enjoyable. It is not going to be easy. It is going to be hard, and he is still willing to say, thy will be done. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, we read in Proverbs, and do not lean on your 
own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. And so we pray this way with, with, with a boldness still. We can say, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. And, and we might say, well, wait a second. How, how can he really go before God in this sense? How, how, can, how can he go before a righteous God? Because after all, David's a big fat sinner just like me. Well, it's because when he says, oh God of my righteousness, he's not just saying that God is righteous, which is certainly true. He's actually saying that God is the source of his own righteousness. God is the one who provides David with a righteousness that allows him to come into the presence of God. He does the same thing for us. God clothes us with his righteousness that is the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Right? And that's when we talked earlier, I mentioned the, the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost and how important that was. Right? It, it is through the Spirit that we are united with Christ. Right? And his righteousness becomes ours. He, he actually wraps his, his, his robes around us. I think back to when I was in high school, right? And I had a letterman's jacket and I was really cool, right? And, and I, might, I might take my letterman's jacket and put it around Aaron's shoulders, right? And, and, and now she's wrapped in that letterman's jacket, right? Now, now that doesn't accomplish a whole lot for her other than saying that, well, she's kind of with that guy, right? But see, when, when Christ in his letterman's jacket, right, his, his letterman's jacket of righteousness is wrapped around us, it, it says we're with him, right? And, and, and it says that, that actually his righteousness is so enveloping us that, that we look righteous even to God he counts us as righteous he he the big seminary words is imputes his righteousness to us so that we can actually go before a holy God not be consumed right if you walk into the presence of a holy God full of your sin you'd be consumed but we can do this because of this righteousness of Christ Jesus because he is our advocate and and he is our high priest Hebrews 4 says since we have a great, great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Sometimes we sing the words, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. What a great promise that is, that Jesus is ever living and pleading for us. He is, he is making a case for us. He is our advocate, our lawyer, going before the great judge, making, making the perfect case for us, what a bit of good news that is. Our sin no longer stands in the way of our prayers being answered because Jesus has borne those sins away. He has taken them away. He's clothed us with his righteousness and he has taken our sin upon him. That's what happened on the cross, right? He, he had this great exchange where he gave us his righteousness, but our sin doesn't just disappear. He had to take it away upon himself and on the cross he received the due penalty for all of our sin 
so that we might have forgiveness. And all you need to do is trust in him. Know that your sins are forgiven in him. And indeed they are. And you can have the salvation that he offers, the mercy that he offers, the grace that he offers. That is all that we need and that is what he supplies. And so we see in verse 1, he says, You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. You see, David knows that he comes into the presence of a God and he, he, he can expect an answer from God, but he knows that it is all because of God's grace. Be gracious and hear my prayer. And so he says that he's done this in the past, and that's, that's the reason we have, that we can have faith going forward, right? We've, we know the past faithfulness of God. We, we know in terms of his relationship with us that he has, he has shown us favor. He has shown us blessing. He has shown us grace, and he will again in the future. David's confidence is based not just on something he read in a book. It's not just on something he heard in a sermon. His confidence is based upon the fact that he knows God intimately, relationally, and he has seen him be faithful many times before. William Plummer puts it this way. He says, often it is all the child of God can do to call to mind the former days when God was with him and to hope for better days to come. Those are blessed times when it is manifest that God alone has been our deliverer. My place, Pascal said it similarly. He said, there's no finer place for the church to be than when it has nowhere left to turn but to God. Right? The idea is that if we have other options, we will chase after them. We will seek after them, and they will ultimately disappoint. They will ultimately fail us. They will ultimately lead us astray. But when we have nowhere left to turn but to God, then we will turn to him and to him alone, and we will find satisfaction. We will find mercy. We will find grace. We will find forgiveness. We will find peace. We will find joy. We will find life and life abundant if we only turn to God in Christ Jesus. That's what David's talking about here. And he says in verse 2, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? This word honor, the, the Hebrew word abode, and it, it's, it's the word that's oftentimes translated glory. Right? And in fact, in chapter, Psalm 3, it's translated that way. 3 verse 3 says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. So when he talks about his honor or glory here, what he's talking about is God. Because God is the one who is his glory. And so essentially what he's saying in this, in this verse is, is that, you know, how long shall my God be treated shamefully by you? He's, he's speaking out to those who, who would treat God shamefully. How? How are they doing this? Well, it says it right there in the verse. How long will you love vain words and seek after lies, right? Instead of seeking after the true and living God, they're seeking after other things. What other gods do you seek after? You say, Pete, I don't seek after any other gods. Well, yes, you do. I do too, right? It might be the, the God of money. It might be the God of fame. It might be the God of self-importance, self-congratulations, of, of even the God of wisdom or the God of intelligence or the, the God of family, good things like that, right? They can be good things, but when we make them ultimate things, when we make them the thing that our life is completely about and we can't imagine life without them, and if God were to take them away from us, we would just say, just kill me now, I, I don't care about living anymore, then we've turned that into a God. And so we must seek after 
God and him alone as our ultimate. These all other promises, all other, all other little g-gods are vain and our worship is vain. Those other gods cannot be trusted. They will ultimately disappoint us. But he says in verse 3, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. He has set apart a certain people for himself. Now, now we need to realize, right, you might ask me, but, but wait a second, Pete, doesn't God love everyone? Right, isn't that kind of basic? And in a sense, yes. In a sense, God does love everyone, but there are different kinds of loves, are there not? Right, I mean, we are commanded to love our neighbor as ourselves. right? We're supposed to love everyone. And yet, we love everyone in a certain way, and then we love our children in a different way. We love our spouse in a different way than that, right? There, there are different levels of love, different kinds of love like that. And what God offers to those who are his, to, to his people, to the church, is a familial love. He has made us his children. He has adopted us as his own. We're, we're not just creatures of his that he has created. We are beloved children that he has adopted. He has shown a loving kindness to all, but, but know that he has called us in a very special way, not because of anything we've done, not because of anything we bring to the table, not because of anything that is within us naturally, but because of his grace and mercy. And so it is that as we trust in him, we receive this grace. And we are his, clothed in his righteousness, joined together with him. Our second point that we need to do, and these second and third points will be a little bit quicker, uh, do not fear. Uh, second point is we need to intentionally redirect our passions, right, when we are in distress. Intentionally redirect our passions. First off, we, we redirect them away from anger, right? I'm not saying there's no room for righteous anger. There is a place for righteous anger. Problem is that we're all too easily unrighteous, right? Our righteous anger is always tainted with our sinfulness. And so we want to be careful about that. And, and we see here, he says in verse 4, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. It's similar to Ephesians 4, where Paul refers to this verse, actually. says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, right? Think about what you've done and what's happened to you and, and, and make a peace with it. Right? Don't be wrapped up in your anger because it will carry you away. We are far too easily swept away by our anger. But instead of having our passions direct us into anger, leading us into anger, we should take that passion and instead have it lead us into worship. Right? Just, just imagine, think of the maddest you've been, the angriest you've been. You know, when somebody just did something terribly wrong, and you just, just oh, so angry, just the passion that you felt at that time. When's the last time you worshipped God with that same amount of passion? Right? Shouldn't, shouldn't we have the same amount of passion as we worship the God who has so graciously blessed us and made us his own? That's the question here. It should lead us into worship. There, there are examples of this in Scripture for sure. We think of Job for sure. He, he had some hardship. He had some distress. I'm putting it mildly. right? He lost all his livestock. He lost all his servants. He lost all his children. 
I mean, everything was just, his whole world around him was crumbling. And what do we read he did? Verse 20 of chapter 1 of Job. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. Is that your reaction to that kind of thing? I know it's not mine. I'm going to be honest with you. That's not my natural reaction, right? When I have an incredible hardship in my life, it's not my natural reaction to say, well, let's worship God, right? And that's why when I labeled this point, I said intentionally redirect our passions. It, it takes intentionality. It, it takes purpose, right? It's not something you'll just kind of naturally slide into. You have to make the decision to worship God in a situation like that. Consider our Lord Jesus Christ on the night he was betrayed, right? He, he, we read in Matthew uh, 26, 26 to 29, about the institution of the Lord's Supper, which we will partake of here in just a few moments, right? But, but what does it say right after that in 26 to 29, then in verse 30, the very next thing, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, right? What was happening? They were going out to the Mount of Olives. They are going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was going to be betrayed. He was going to be turned over to the authorities. He was going to be whipped and mocked and spat upon and crucified and murdered. But Jesus says, first, let's worship. Let's worship. If you knew you were about to get murdered, <laughs> would you be wanting to worship God at that moment? I probably wouldn't. But see, sometimes we need to not wait for our feelings to get where they need to be. We need to make a decision and let our feelings follow, right? Because when we choose to worship, when we, we, we decide to worship, when we come before the throne of God in worship, what we're doing is we are remembering what is true about God. We are rehearsing what is true about God, right? Our, our worship service isn't intended to be a, uh, 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 an entertainment forum for us, right? It's not about us having a, you know, you hear it all the time, you know, boy, that was a great worship experience today. Uh, you know, I'm not saying you want to have a bad worship experience by any means, but that's not the primary goal. The primary goal is to come before the God who is the God of the universe, to see him more clearly and to bow before him and to realize all that he has done and to have it thus shape who you are and who you will be, right? And so sometimes, even before we feel like it, we need to worship, intentionally redirect our passions. Third point, we need to peacefully rest in the Lord. Peacefully rest in the Lord. Much of our distress in life is because we seek earthly satisfaction, right? We, we've got these just earthly things that we're seeking after. We want to be satisfied in them, and, and they inevitably disappoint us. And so what we need to realize is, is we need to realize that heavenly joy is greater than earthly satisfaction, right? Heavenly joy is greater than earthly satisfaction. And when I say heavenly joy, I'm not just talking about the joy that will be ours when we die and go to be with the Lord. Indeed, that is true. But I'm talking about the joy that the Lord provides us. Even now, if we are, we are living in his grace and we understand the truths of the gospel, the joy that he provides us, even now is greater than the earthly satisfactions that we can find. 
Last week, toward the end of my sermon, I referenced Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's not saying here that, that our troubles aren't real. He's not saying that our troubles don't matter. He's not saying that our troubles shouldn't have any impact on us whatsoever. But what he is saying is, as real as our troubles are, as impactful as our troubles are, as distressing as our troubles are, the joy that God offers us is even greater still. So much so that it doesn't even compare. And what he's saying is that, that we have a foretaste of that joy even now. A joy that is derived from heaven. A joy that recognizes all he has done. Right As John Newton once wrote, solid joys and lasting treasures none but Zion's children know. And so we're called in worship to offer right sacrifices. Verse 5, right? Not just to do the things that we're supposed to do, not just go through the motions, not just, you know, perfunctively doing the things that we, we've been dictated to. It's not just an obligation. It's a thing that comes from the heart, right? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's not like paying taxes, right? I don't know about you, but I've not met anybody yet who, who when April 15th rolls around, says, okay, good, I get to pay my taxes today, right? None of us do that. But see, that's the kind of giving that the Lord is looking for. He's not looking for, okay, look at the tax chart and figure out how much you owe and write your check and be done with it, right? No, he's saying, no, the giving that I'm looking for is giving that comes from the heart, giving that, that, that is a, a realization of, of what you have been blessed with and a desire to bless others as a result. I'm not just talking giving to the church. I'm talking about giving in general, giving of yourself, giving, giving to those who are in need. I'm talking about just any kind of generosity in general. That's the kind of giving that he is looking for. Psalm 51 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. We need to acknowledge our sinfulness. Right? We can only realize the grace of God to the degree that we recognize our own sinfulness. Right? And so that's why in our worship service, one of the very first things we always do right, is have a confession of sin. Because it's foundational to coming before God. Hebrews 13, 15. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God as that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So we, we put our trust in the Lord. That's what he says here in the next line. Put your trust in the Lord. Right? Have faith in him. Depend upon him. Not just pray a prayer once and be done with it. Not just say the words, I trust in the Lord. But, but actually trust in the Lord. Depend upon the Lord. Right? Let's say you had an elevator that would take you up to the top floor of a building. And it was kind of rickety. And, you know, they say, well, do you trust that elevator? You say, yeah, absolutely. I totally trust the elevator. They say, okay, get on it. You're like, no, don't think so. I'll take the stairs. Do you really trust the elevator? I mean, you said you did. No, you don't trust the elevator. That's why you're walking up the stairs, right? Right? Our trust, our faith isn't, isn't made by what we do, but it certainly is reflected by what we do. Right? If it is a true faith, it will, it will display itself in the way we live 
our lives. And so we trust in the Lord. It's borne out in action. And then there are many who say, who will show us some good? David's speaking of others here. He says that they are aimlessly searching, essentially. Where will good be found? But then he shifts the attention back to his own prayer. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Right? It's a way of saying, make, make your favor shine upon us. Right? That's, that's a, the ironic benediction. Right? The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Right? And so the next verse, verse 7, then compares these two. Right? And he says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound, right? When they're seeking after all these earthly comforts and these earthly things, right? They, they have big parties and joy and food and drink, but you've put more joy in my heart than all of that already, Lord. That's what he's saying here. He knows, he knows that heavenly joy is better than earthly satisfaction. And he knows that security is better than safety. You get the difference between those? Security is better than safety. Augustus Montague, top lady, who wrote Rock of Ages, also wrote a hymn called A Debtor to Mercy Alone. He says, Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given, more happy but not more secure. The glorified spirits in heaven. He says, Those glorified spirits in heaven might be more happy than me right now, but they're no more secure. Even though I am here in the midst of sin, in the midst of pain, in the midst of danger, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trial, they are no more secure than I am because we are both in the hand of God Almighty. And he holds us for his own. So, because of that, verse 8, in peace I will both lie down and sleep. Right? That, that word both there has the sense of simultaneously. Right? He says I'm able to lie down and sleep. I don't have to toss and turn all night long for you alone O lord make me dwell it says in safety in the esv i think a better translation though is what the new english bible says it says you make me dwell unafraid right because there are dangers it's not completely safe we live in a broken and fallen world we might die tonight right but we're still in the lord's hands and i'm unafraid of that because whatever comes my way, I can trust in him. It's that childhood prayer, right? Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Right? That, that basic childhood prayer is so, so profound and so true, and it's the kind of faith that we need. Of course, Jesus tells us all along that it, we must have the faith of children, right? That's the kind of faith that we need to have, a, a simple and a trusting and a dependent faith that trusts in him above all else and here's the really good news that's the kind of faith he offers he gives it to us and we can be sure as we read before that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the promise that we have. That is the, the wonderful promise of which this meal is a guarantee. And so we rejoice in that fact as we come to him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great gift of your son. We thank you for the great gift of faith that you have given us. We thank you 
for the great gift of your spirit that applies that faith of the righteousness of Christ to us. And we pray that you would help us to live lives of faith. Help us to rest in you. Help us to know that we have salvation in you. Help us to redirect our passion toward worship. And Lord, help us to call out to you in prayer, confidently knowing indeed that our prayers will be answered. We ask it in the name of Christ Jesus, who indeed is the sure and steady anchor. Amen. If you're able now, would you rise with me as we sing together, Christ, the sure and steady anchor.